And while you're turning, let's open with prayer. We may need it. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the time that we can set aside for you in this free country, that we can worship you, that we can learn about your word, that we can be encouraged and strengthened and edified. And we pray that you would do just that, that you would guide us, that your Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we were in Joshua and we looked at the first five chapters and we I think called that, help me Will, we called that uh, the captain of the Lord's host. We looked at how Jesus was that person, the angel, that had his sword drawn, that Joshua met after crossing Jericho. And we looked at how God intended for everybody to understand that he was, he was with them. He had told Joshua that I'm going to be just like you, with you, as I was with Moses. And we looked at how Joshua had to have been wondering. He had followed Joshua, or Moses, been his second in command, watched the things that God did in his life, splitting the Red Sea, the ten plagues in Egypt, the things that were just beyond human expectation. And when he died, God made the promise to him, don't, don't worry, everything that I did with Moses, I'm going to be with you and no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. What a promise. And we looked at how that that is applicable to us. That when Jesus rose from the dead, he told his disciples, you go into all the world. That's a big charge. But he said, I will be with you unto the ends of the earth. The same promise for us, that he would be with us. Out of those first five chapters of Joshua, there is a part that we did kind of skip over, if you're sensitive to those things. And that's the second chapter where Joshua sends these two spies to go in to Jericho. So Joshua chapter 2, look at verse 1. Joshua the son of Nun sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. Now, There's some background here that we should probably touch on. Do you remember some 40 years ago, Moses was in a similar situation. They had come out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and they arrived at the borders of Canaan, and Moses sent in 12 spies to go spy out the land. And do you remember the result of that? The 12 came out, and 10 of them melted the heart of the people. They said, there's no way, we have no chance. There's giants in there. Their cities are walled. You send us in there, we'll all be dead. And that testimony got in the heart, the mind of the, of the whole nation, and they wept that whole night, telling God, we're not going. There were two guys, Joshua and Caleb, that said, we need to go right now. <laughs> Their defense is departed from them. We need to go now and take them, because the Lord has given it into our hands. Well, it's Joshua's turn now. He's in charge, and how many spies does he send in? You may be sensitive to that. He's not taking the chance that there's going to be a bunch of them come out and kill the mentality that's built up in the people that we're going. We are going in there, and we're taking this place. Joshua's one of those guys, and he sends in two spies. Now, we're going to come back to that idea. Spies. Because, you guys know this story, those spies go in there, they stay at the harlot Rahab's house. 
That's the only information that we have about them that they got in there. And they come back out to Joshua. Was there any information that they learned that was implemented in a battle plan? In other words, did they find out that that northeast gate, the hinges are coming off? And if we go up there with a big battering ram, we can get... There was nothing like that. There was no information that they brought back that told Joshua how to attack this city. And yet, what are they called? They're they're called spies. Spies are for informational purposes. By the way, the United States of America, our CIA, is founded on this story, where God sent spies, and actually I think it's the 12 spies that Moses sent in. The CIA, there's a mural at the headquarters that commemorates Moses sending 12 spies into the land to get information. We, We used to be biblical. (laughs) honest to goodness everything that we did had a biblical foundation now these spies come out and in verse 2 it says it was told the king of Jericho saying behold there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country and the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab saying bring forth the men that are come to thee which are entered into thine house for they be come to search out all the country Kind of wonder how he knows that. Verse 4, And the woman took the two men, hid them, and said, Thus there came men unto me, but I wist not whence they were. And it came to pass about the time of shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whither the men went, I wot not. Pursue after them quickly, for you shall overtake them. Now if you dig into the Hebrew and the Greek, the language here, what she's really doing, technically it's called lying. A nice, big, bald-faced lie. Now, I have heard people preach sermons on, you know, that, that, that you, you can't do that. We're, we're, we're not supposed to lie, and, and that's true. But I can tell you, just remove me from a pulpit. I have no problem with, say, Nazis want to kill my family, and they're asking where they at. I wouldn't think twice about lying. Now, yes, we're not supposed to lie. Be careful, though, how we judge or how we condemn someone in certain circumstances. I'll leave that alone, but I've got to be honest. That, that kind of bothers me. This woman is always portrayed by what she did as being faithful, being righteous. See, when you're dealing with pure evil, God has no problem with going after those people. Into that. Verse 7. The men pursued after, uh, verse 6, it's, but she had brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order upon the roof. And the men pursued after them the way to Jordan unto the fords, and as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. And before they were laid down, she came up unto them upon the roof. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. Now this is very interesting. It says in verse 9, it paints the picture that she goes up and it's basically a whisper. She doesn't want people to know that she's hiding them there. She's whispering, but she's giving them information. See, she's chosen sides. That's what's so interesting about this. 
This woman, and wherever she is mentioned in the Bible, you know how it describes her. Rahab the harlot. The Bible's pretty consistent about those kind of things. Mary, out of whom seven devils were cast. It kind of sticks with you. But this woman, clearly, as we're going to see here, she chose sides. Look what she says. I know that the Lord hath given you the land. She's not saying, I flipped a coin, I'm taking a chance, I'm, I'm going I'm to jump on with you guys. That's not communicated in this. She knows in her heart. Put a gun to her head, which is basically what's happening here. This is a death sentence. If the king finds out she's lying about hiding these two men, she's dead. And probably her family. She's putting everything on the line. She knows, she says, that the Lord hath given them the land. And look at the reason why. Verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. Now, wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. When did that take place? When was the Red Sea dried up before these people? Forty years before this event. Now, the people, the Israelites, who walked through that, who the miracle was provided for, probably don't have as much faith in that event as, as motivation, as encouragement. Yeah, God did that. for work. We can handle this. But this person, and she says all the inhabitants of the land, all of their enemies are thinking what? We, we got no chance. According to her testimony, we're dead meat because of what God did for you guys 40 years ago. Now see that, we need to stop for a second. That takes you back and makes you think about something. See, when you're going through the Egypt experience and going through the Red Sea, you think somebody's thinking, why does it got to be so hard? Why, why does God make Pharaoh chase us out of Egypt after he let us go? God hardened his heart, got him on that chariot with all his army to kill every one of us out here? Why did God orchestrate it that way? He told them, I want the whole world to know that I'm on your side. See, the word got around. Sometimes in your life, you find you're in a hard spot. And you know the only way out is to get, you need some big help. Big help. Well, what happens when that comes? It's not just for you. It may be for your brother or sister. Maybe for a relative, a neighbor, somebody down the road that hears what God did for you. Because she says, we all faint because of what God did for you guys. Now you think, think if the spies had never been even sent in there. Think if they didn't have the knowledge, the intel, the intelligence of what was going on in the enemy camp. See, there's other biblical examples of this. When Gideon was told by God, you got 300 people, and then you go attack about 20,000. He told Gideon, get out of your tent tonight, and I want you to go down and put your ear up against the tent of the enemies. And when he did that, do you remember what he heard? The enemy soldiers inside that tent were sitting around a campfire talking about the dreams that they had had. That there was something that had rolled into their camp, and it was the sword of Gideon, they said. They called it by his name, and they said, we're dead. 
Gideon only knew that because he went down into the lion's den to listen to the enemy. People don't volunteer for that. If God tells us, initiates, wants us to go in there, we kind of think, nah, that's fine. I can do without that. They go down there into the hard spot, but they hear something. Information that they need. Gideon heard it. These people, they don't want to fight us. They think we're going to kill all of them. Same thing here with these two spies. This might be a decent enough time to look at that. That first verse, as it mentions, it says that Joshua sent in two spies. However, as we said, they don't really bring back information that allows Joshua to take the city. They didn't bring back actionable intelligence. Look at chapter 6, when this is being, after this whole episode is over, and this chapter, this event is being talked about. Chapter 6, look at verse 17. And the city shall be accursed, even it and all that therein to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house. Why? Because she hid the... I, th- I, I, I thought they were spies. That verse says she hid the messengers that we sent. See, there's another place in the Bible too where it refers to those two guys as messengers. Now, what's a messenger? What's the difference? A spy goes in and you don't even know they're there. They they enter, they gather some information, they might be write it down, take a piece with them, and they exit without anybody knowing about it. A messenger is totally different. They go there to present information or to receive information from whoever they're talking to. These two guys, whether and I'm not sitting, standing here saying they knew that this was their job description. But as we're going to find out tonight before this is over, those two guys were sent in for a purpose, to rescue that woman. When they got called by Joshua, we got two guys, two volunteers, you and you with the glasses, here. And they get sent in there. I don't think they had any idea that they were being used by God to secure one specific woman and her house. But when you get to the end of this, there is only one conclusion I can come to. This is a woman of destiny that God intended to make sure she, she, we got to get her out. We are sending two guys in there and they are going to get her out before this sucker comes crashing down. Joshua chapter 2, verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our heart did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven, above and in earth beneath. I can tell you that I would like to hear some 21st century Christians today be able to recite something that supportive of our God. He's the God of the heaven, of earth, everything beneath. This woman is a believer. We use that word today, and we throw it around kind of nonchalantly a little bit. Well, that guy goes to my church, so, well, he's a believer. That guy went to a couple meetings I went to. 
And they very well. Praise God, I hope they are a believer. But this is a picture of a believer. (laughs) Somebody that in their mind and in their heart has sold out to the Lord. She's putting her life on the line. And she's voicing, I'm with you guys. I believe in the God that you serve. And what does the Bible teach about that kind of declaration in your mind and in your heart? It's a picture of salvation, isn't it? And this is Joshua. This is Old Testament stuff. But remember even Abraham. The Bible says that Abraham believed God. And it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Abraham was not God's friend, except for he believed the voice that he heard. Abraham was a believer. And God made him the father of us all for that. This woman's a believer. And because of that, guess what she is not going to be allowed to experience? That wrath, that death, that mess that is coming from God himself. These messengers are sent in there to get her and to pull her out. It's the only record of the people that we have those messengers, those spies, talking to. This woman. Now therefore I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord. She wants to even swear by the Lord. Since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token. We in our language think of the word token as something that's not expensive. Here I got a a wooden nickel. This is a token that we put in a game and I get a plate. It's not what this word means. This is something like a, a seal, a stamp. Give me a token, something valuable. Something that costs you a lot. And that's what she wants. In verse 13, that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brethren, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. And the men answered her, Our life for yours, if you utter not this our business. And it shall be, when the Lord, when the Lord, not if, when the Lord hath given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with thee. In those last few verses, the bargain that she is making that whoever is in my house, then we save them. That's the deal we're making. If I get them in here, if they're in my house, they don't die. You know what comes to my mind? Go back to that Egypt when that Passover lamb was killed and God said that the death angel was coming that night and whichever house, not just a specific person, Whichever house didn't have the lamb's blood on the doorposts, what would happen? The death angel would go in there and the firstborn would die. That was the penalty. I mean, you get the picture that what if they had an Egyptian friend over for dinner that night? That person would have been okay, would have been protected under there. This is the same kind of thing. Now, verse 15. Then she let them down by a cord through the window. Remember that word, cord. For her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. And she said unto them, Get you to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you, and hide yourself there three days, until the pursuers be returned, and afterward may you go your way. And the men said unto her, We will be blameless of this thine oath, which thou hast made us swear. Behold, When we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window 
which thou didst let us down by. Now don't get the wrong idea here. When, they, when it says that put this line of scarlet, this, these are grown men and their weight is supported by this. This isn't sewing thread that they're hanging out the line and it, it could break it. That's not what this is. But that it draws our attention. And I need to put a, a, a disclaimer out there. For those of you who you don't know me or have not been in a Bible study, sometimes, let me just put it this way. I take a very high view of the Scripture, which means every word matters. Every name, every number, every place, the name of a town, a valley, a mountain, it all matters. That the Holy Spirit can communicate to us so many extra things, and this is one example. In verse six, in verse fifteen, it says that she let them down by a cord through the window. And in verse eighteen, they said they used the word: "When we come into the land, you shall bind this line of scarlet thread." You need to note, notice those kind of things that happen in the Bible. The Bible all the time we'll talk about the same thing and use two different words to, to talk about it so that you get one meaning and a second meaning about the same thing. This thing that they're being let down by, she called it a cord, they called it a, a line. You dig into the Hebrew and the word that she uses, cord, is also translated pain and sorrow. The word that they use, that word line, which can, they can both mean just what it says, a cord, a rope. That can also mean hope and expectation. Now, this is a strange thing. But at one verse, verse 15, the meaning is pain and sorrow. And on the other side is hope and expectation. What's in between those two meanings? There's an amount of time in verse 16. Hide yourself for three days. And there's a picture of the resurrection. For three days, the disciples lived with the pain and sorrow that he's gone. The guy that we thought was God's son. We thought he was the Messiah. He's dead. They killed him. We saw with our own eyes. He was taken apart piece by piece. And they were stunned. They thought we're next. That's why they were hiding in the upper room. But on the third day, Some hope and expectation came back when the women went down there and said, he he ain't there. The point is, in a matter of four verses here, the Holy Spirit can weave into the text the same picture, the same message that occurs about 1,500 pages later in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is what's amazing about our Bible. This is why I look forward to coming to a Bible study. Because this kind of stuff is in here. See, there's something so interesting about the Bible. You ever notice there's not one chapter on, say, baptism? Well, let's see, we turn to this page and this tells us everything we need to know about baptism. See, if that was the case, if that would get get ripped out of there, baptism would be gone. We wouldn't even have it. What God did in writing the Bible is He put all the truth on every page. It's everywhere. So if, if you went to prison and we could smuggle you in, just say, the book of Joshua, guess what you could find in there? You could find a story of the resurrection right there. See, it's everywhere. You can't tear out one page, one chapter, one book, and get rid of the truth of God. 
God wrote this thing in such a miraculous way. It's everywhere. Like the Red Sea, when they go through that thing and the, God brings the water over their enemies, it's a picture of baptism. It's one of the evidences that this thing is beyond a miracle. It came from somewhere outside of where we live. Look at verse 19. It shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of thy house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head, and we will be guiltless. And whosoever shall be with thee in the house, his blood shall be on our head, if any hand be upon him. And if thou utter this our business, then we will be quit of thine oath, which thou hast made us to swear. So they're painting the picture here. They've, they've made an agreement. You get whoever you need inside that house, whoever you trust. You get them in that house, and they'll be okay. Now, after we know this story, and we all know how it ends, that the walls are coming down. Where is the most dangerous place to live in this town? on top of those walls. But what if you have faith in God? This woman who voiced the God that you guys serve, I'm all on board. I know that he's the God of heaven and of the earth. And because of her faith, her house became the only safe refuge in that town. She could have been living in the worst of the worst place, South Central L.A., East St. Louis. Any place you want to think of that, you know, you don't want to stop and ask for directions. This was the safest place to be because God had it pointed out. God knew that's where my anointed, that's where my believer lives. Nothing will touch them. In your life, you may feel like there's a time when you're in a hospital room or you're alone on the road and you feel like you're in the dangerous spot. Never forget, as long as you got his seal on you, God knows where you're at. And those physical locations can mean nothing if you're his. What a picture of this woman and her faith. Look at verse 21. She said... According unto your words, so be it. You notice they didn't have a signed document. They didn't have a legal representation of something signed in blood. Any type of covenant, they had each other's word. And it's an image of what we have. We have God's word on this thing. We, we come around here every week to just go through this thing page by page to learn Exactly, precisely, what did God's word, what has he told us, what has he shaken our hand, I give you my word on. Because whatever he has told us, we know, I can count on that. And it's only the written word. I say only because that's how the world would look at it. But to us, when we have God's word on it, that's all we need. You and I are resting our eternal salvation on this. That what's written in here is is true. I'm to the point in my life, I'm I'm perfectly fine with that. Because I know this thing is true. It's reliable. It's God's word. This is what we base everything on. It says they went in verse 22, 
and came unto the mountain and abode there three days until the pursuers were returned. And the pursuers sought them throughout all the way, but found them not. So the two men returned and descended from the mountain and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun and told him all things that befell them. And they said unto Joshua, Truly the Lord hath delivered into our hands all the land, for even all the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. I can tell you what jumps into my mind when I read that last verse of their report. What do you think Joshua thought when he's hearing these two spies come out? They're repeating the exact words that he and Caleb gave to Moses 40 years earlier. God doesn't change. And he can tap you on the shoulder and let you know, I'm, I'm right here with you. It had to have been such an encouragement to Joshua to know, I was there, I saw it with my own eyes. And I know those people were scared of us. And these guys come out and say that they're scared to death of us. He knows God is bringing his word to pass. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. There shall not be a man, not one, able to stand before you all the days of your life. Now there is something we need to expand on a little bit here. We, we titled this thing, Rahab, a woman of destiny. Why would we look at this? Why would we conclude that this woman is such a woman of destiny? And to, and to do that, we need to step back a little bit and look at how God has dealt in other similar circumstances. Keep a finger here and let's go to Genesis chapter 19. Um, Genesis chapter 18 first. Genesis chapter 18. We need to set the stage. Genesis chapter 18. And this is when, this is just after the Lord has come to visit Abraham to tell him to reinstitute the promise, uh, you're going to have a son. And as the Lord is walking away from the meal that he had with Abraham, Abraham's walking along with him. He's walking toward Sodom. The Lord has sent on two angels to go into Sodom. And look at verse 18, verse 17, in chapter 18, verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of. So the Lord says, um, Abraham's my friend. I'm going to tell him what I'm about to do. He is going to give Abraham information that nobody else has. Look at verse 20. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me, and if not, I will know it. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. So the men, that's talking about the angels that he's sending on ahead. They were in the form of man. But God and Abraham stand here and have a conversation. And Abraham says in verse 23, Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now that question is the entire story 
of Sodom and Gomorrah. We think, and there's a ton of truth into it, that God was pouring out judgment on a certain lifestyle, and he was. The Bible tells us he did that as an example. But the basis of this story, Abraham wants to know, well, what, what, what would happen if there was some righteous people in there? What would you do? Because he knows, God has just told him, we're, we're going to destroy that place. And Abraham wants to know, if there was righteous in there, would they receive the fire and brimstone that the, the wicked would? Verse 24, Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? I think Abraham is a good ethnic Jew, isn't he? You get it, Jerry. He is negotiating. Well, you, you, you wouldn't do that. And then he calls him, you're the, the righteous judge of all the earth. Verse 26, the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I will spare all that place for their sakes. Now, there's a truth there. If he could find 50, that whole city would be spared. The wicked in that city would experience a long suffering of judgment and probably would never know it's their righteous neighbors that are holding back the judgment. You got that? Sometimes we think, God, what? Why doesn't God just destroy such and such place? If there's a righteous person there. If there's a righteous person. Look what Abraham does. Verse 27. Abraham answered and said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Peradventure there shall lack five of the fifty. In other words, forty-five. Wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of five? And he said, if I find forty and five, I will not destroy it. I bet Abraham stops there. This is probably taking place in the streets of New York City. And he spake unto him yet again and said, Peradventure there shall be forty found. And he said, I will not do it for forty. And he said unto him, O oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure there shall be thirty. I will not do it if I find thirty. And he said, Behold now, if I take upon me... To speak unto the Lord, peradventure there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. What is happening here? What number are we working toward? Started at fifty. Goes down to forty. We know what happens when the angel goes into Sodom. How many righteous he found? How many does the Bible say that were righteous that were living there? He's heading toward the number one. The entire basis of this story that nobody even reads. They just go right to where God pours out judgment. The whole story is, what what would you do if one of yours was in there? Verse 32, And he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. once. Peradventure ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place. Now, there's confirming evidence here. You get down into chapter 19 when the angels arrive there. And look at verse... uh, Well, We know what takes place in about verse... uh, Look at verse 13. Those angels get there and they tell Lot. Uh, Verse 12, The men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides 
son-in-law and thy sons, thy daughters, and whatsoever thou hast in this city, bring them out of this place. This is exactly what Rahab did. They're telling Lot, anybody that you know, anybody that's yours, you get them in here now. And in verse 14, And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this place. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. The sons-in-law thought he was just joking around. And that's why they stayed behind. They were not believers. If you believe in the word of the Lord, at some point it will pay huge dividends. So God gets, these angels get Lot, his wife, and the two daughters, and they actually grab them by the hand to help remove them. And when you get down to verse 22, the angel said, Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou be come thither. The testimony of the angel who said, My job is to destroy this place. He tells Lot, I can't do anything. I can do nothing until what? Until I get you out of here. That right there is the confirming evidence. They were given commandment by God. You don't touch the righteous. And this is another picture just like Rahab in Jericho where God knows those that are his. This doesn't mean that bad things can't happen to God's people. We're not talking about getting a flat tire on the road or your water heater blowing up or your dishwasher not working. Those things are going to likely happen in life. But when God pours out His wrath into the earth, it's never meant for His kids. He will always go in and get them out and remove them. Thank God for that promise. This is why I say Rahab is a woman of destiny. That woman that God knew who she was in there, those spies ended up exactly at the base of the wall below her house. They go and they talk to her. And whether those spies slash messengers knew it, they were on a mission to present an opportunity for that woman to get out. Let's go to the New Testament. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Because this amazing woman, Rahab, makes it into what we call the Hall of Faith as a play on words from the Hall of Fame. Hebrews 11 is a list of people that God wanted to identify as enormous faith individuals. Hebrews chapter 11, and look at verse 31. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not. According to that language, why did Rahab not perish in Jericho? Because of what she believed. It specifically says that the people that did die in Jericho, they didn't believe. They believe not. Go to the next chapter in your Bible, James chapter 2. And James talking about faith. 
He has a section here in chapter 2, starting at verse 14, where he's talking about faith without works is dead. Look at verse 25. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers. Again, they're not spies. When she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. What he's pointing out is her actions showed what was in her heart. Because of what she believed, her actions led to some event. As Christians, we need to take some stock in our own life. Does what I believe, does it translate to my daily walk outside my front door? This woman put her life in their hands because she believed these two strangers coming in. The New Testament, Hebrews and James, brings this woman, Rahab the harlot, all the way in the New Testament to put her up on a pedestal, a pillar, so everybody knows that that woman had faith. Go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. The New Testament begins by telling us where Jesus came from, his lineage. Isn't it amazing? The New Testament starts out with these words. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. It tells you where he came from. It's amazing to me. If you really think about how you could turn readers off and bore them to death, but God wants the world to know where he came from. And in verse 4, listing all these people, verse 5, Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. And Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king. This Ruth, when she was brought out of Jericho and into the people of Israel, she is given to wife to a man where she and he will give birth to Boaz. Boaz was a very powerful man. A story in the book of Ruth of a redemption I hope that the, that the name Ruth and Boaz have, I hope that has some meaning, that you have some picture of what takes place in that story. This woman, Ruth, who is an outsider just like Rahab, she's a Moabitess, but she is brought in. Boaz brings her, he marries her, and redeems her, her family's land and brings her out of poverty, out of famine, to give her a security. This woman, Rahab, gave birth to that man, Boaz. She's the great-grandmother of David the king. That's amazing. This woman was an Amoritess. The Amorites were the ones living in Canaan when Joshua went in there. But because of what she believed, God made sure she was taken care of. He went in. He sent two people in and they brought her out. This, we're going to end with, go to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Jesus is talking about something here. Jesus is talking about, starting in verse 24, about the next time he will be here on earth, his second coming. 
Luke 17, verse 24, For as the lightning that lighteneth out of one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in His day. He is talking about when He comes back in His glory and His power with all the angels. When He's not going to be paying the penalty for sin like He was at this point. He's going to go to heaven. He's going to be there for a while. But when He comes back the next time, He's going to be coming back as King. And listen to the two events in the Bible that He uses to describe this. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold and planted and builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Revealed, that's where we get the word, the name, the title of the book of Revelation. That's where Jesus is revealed to be truly who he is. He's not coming as a suffering servant then. He's coming as the King, the Son of God, the creator of the universe. And it's going to be revealed exactly who he is. And he used two examples. One was Noah. That most vivid example of God's judgment being poured into the earth. And where was Noah when the water started to fall? The Bible tells us that God sealed him in that ark. Paints the picture that the door was so big... Noah didn't even have a mechanism to close it. They went in there, as God said, you get in there, and it says that God closed the door, sealed them inside, protected them. So the wrath of God was all around them, but it didn't touch them. The other story was Lot. They were eating and drinking, and all the stuff was going on until Lot went out of that city. And what happened the next day, according to Jesus, or the same day? The bowl of wrath got poured out into the earth and it destroyed wickedness. But there was no righteous there. The pattern is always so clear that whenever God is going to pour out His wrath, His cleansing of sin, the punishment for sin, He always first removes His people Out of the way. That's what Jesus is saying here. He removes them and gets them out of the way. And that other example is Rahab. Those three in the Old Testament are such wonderful examples where God makes sure, and if there's one in there, God goes and gets them out. See, you and I are living in a world that doesn't know it, but the judgment of God is due to come again. What Jesus is talking about there, that second time when he comes in glory, all the signs from the Bible are it's not too much farther down the road. What's going to happen before all the nasty, the plagues that are written in Revelation, what happens before that stuff gets poured out? God's people, as the image of Rahab and Lot and Noah, those people that believe in God are going to be removed out. We call that the rapture. That's the Latin word. 
in the New Testament, that they'll be yanked out of here before that starts. That's, why, that's one of the reasons we believe that so strongly is how consistent God has that picture in his Bible. It, on the surface, just declares that, that God removes his people, that we are not appointed to wrath, it says in Thessalonians. But there's also all those pictures. And what Abraham found out from God in that conversation was, what would you do if there were 50 righteous? And he works his way down. No, Abraham finally let up. You almost get the feeling he wanted to keep going. He was working his way down to one. And that's the message of that story. When it comes time for God to cleanse something, to really deal with sin, he gets his out of the way first. Lord, we pray that the things that we have learned tonight, that they would dwell deep in our hearts, that the seed of the word would be planted in good ground, that it would grow to fruition. And Lord, I pray over all of the people that attend pastors' churches. I pray that the, the angels would go before them to straighten their path, that they would live under an open heaven, and that you would always guard and protect them with all diligence. Father, we pray for Pastor and Tiff right now, that you would minister health, healing, hope, and joy to their home. In Jesus' name, amen.